Bitcoin is the ideal candidate to be that reference point because it's tied to energy and energy is the fundamental currency of the universe. Life uses energy, stars, black holes use energy. There is no future for humanity in space. This planet we have is our spaceship and it has everything everyone needs to survive. All the energy, all the water, Before even diving into anything that you're all the things that you're working on, I'd love to hear more about your background, your childhood. Like, let's imagine that we're back in time and we're in middle school, high school together. What are you interested in at that time? Starting from the very beginning. <laughs> uh, causing trouble. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I was uh, in Atlanta. Uh, that's, you know, formative year. I was born in Manhattan, uh, formative years in Atlanta. And ever since I was, a, you know, I, one of my first vivid memories is looking out at the, um, uh, whatever the beach is in, uh, uh, is it, I think it's Long Island and just being amazed. And so, you know, I've, and my parents, um, were scuba divers. Uh, my mom had learned at camp one year in a lake. And so they got us interested in scuba diving. And so, yeah, I've always just been super interested in the ocean. Um, you know, every chance I got, we would go down to, you know, whatever the closest beach to Atlanta is, whether it's a, you know, Amelia Island or uh, in South Carolina or, South Georgia. Um, yeah, it was always the, that was always the best sort of, um, you know, times of the year. School, not so much, but uh, whenever we would go on, you know, a summer vacation uh, once a year, drive down to the coast, that was really, that's what I was interested in. Always the ocean. Well, I'll join you on that. I, very much enjoyed the activities outside of school more than I enjoyed sitting in a classroom all day. I also feel like I had a little bit of ADHD. So just sitting down all day in a classroom, that was not the way that I like to learn. I much preferred after school being able to go and play sports and just move around, uh, which it sounds like you were pretty similar. Yeah. Yeah. We lived in a nice little tucked away cul-de-sac at the bottom of a hill not you know not like a planned neighborhood or anything but it just the bottom of a hill and there was nowhere else to go so there was cul-de-sac so we you know there was uh you know the kids down the street had a basketball hoop we were you know running around uh and every, through everybody's backyards there was a bunch of kids in the neighborhood you know you get in fights uh <laughs> with the kids in the neighborhood um, but yeah, just playing outside kickball, um, you know, at the end of, uh, at the end of the road, you've got, you know, you don't have to, uh, <laughs> you don't have to pause the game for cars, right? <laughs> so if we take a step back and we try and look at how this interest of yours in, uh, I, I don't even know what to call it, but like the ocean, uh, just things that 
I feel like a lot of people early on in their lives aren't necessarily drawn to. It seems like from a very early age, you were drawn to the ocean. You were drawn to figuring out how the world works and how the world operates. Do you think that that was more a byproduct of your parents pushing you towards those types of activities or bring you on these trips? Or do you think that there was something else that was a formative moment in your earlier years that got you on the trajectory and the path that you're on today? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's always, the ocean has always been fascinating, right? A lot of people would, you know, a lot of people look up, right, to space. Um, but for me, space was a lot less interesting and drew my attention a lot less than when I would go to the, the coast and just look out, right? The future of humanity is the ocean where we originally came from. Uh, the human body was not meant to survive in space. Um, and so when, you know, all my friends were, you know, looking up at the stars, I was always kind of looking out at the horizon, right? Um, and then I just took to the ocean, you know, I was a lifeguard uh, for many years coach baseball all morning and then go straight to work as a lifeguard. And I remember the first time my parents took me uh, diving, um, we did a, what's called a discover scuba diving. So it's, uh, you're not certified yet, but I took to it. I was a natural and the, I'm sure I caused the dive instructor a lot of headache, but uh <laughs> I ended up going too deep uh, and it was totally fine. You know, I was going 70, 80, 90 feet on the dive that I was only really supposed to go 40, 40 feet uh, max. Um, and now looking back as a, an instructor decade, decade and a half ago, I would have been, uh, I, I wouldn't have let that fly. Uh, but yeah, my buoyancy, as soon as I hit the water, you know, I understood buoyancy innately. Um, all, you know, I swam uh, varsity in high school and was on the club team at uh, my first university. Um, just always, always in the water all summer long, you know, uh, whether it's a lake, uh, whatever, whatever the nearest body of water is, I was always jumping in it. That's amazing. To, to be completely honest and straightforward from the start of the podcast, I feel like you and I are kind of opposites in this way. So I am much more comfortable on land. Whenever I'm in the water, I'm just out of my element. I was never the best swimmer. I'm much more comfortable doing activities on land. And I've actually never been scuba diving. So when you were talking through that story, just to understand the dynamics of it, Imagine that you're going scuba diving for the first time or with someone who's going scuba diving for the first time. What are the important things to keep in mind for a beginner? Are there certain things that are important to know or understand now that you've been doing it for many years? Oh, yeah. They just you got to remember to breathe. Everybody forgets to breathe. As soon as you hit the water, you start, you know, you, you take a big, deep breath and then just breathe shallowly. Uh, you know, you're taking small, tiny breaths, you're not exhaling, but it's, you know, all, all that initial sort of panic goes away once you start breathing, right? Everybody, it's the, it was the most common thing. You just, and I just sit there like, 
Work with me. Come on, baby. Breathe. Breathe. <laughs> All you got to do is breathe. And, you know, people people say, oh, you know, I'm claustrophobic, but you're actually more free when you're underwater because, you know, especially when you're scuba diving because you have three dimensions to move in rather than just two dimensions up here on land. So, and you just got to remember to keep breathing, big, deep breaths and event and you'll, you'll calm down really, really quickly. That's, that's the key is just get in the water and remember to breathe. Everybody forgets to breathe. <laughs> it sounds so simple. <laughs> just yeah. remember to breathe. And is, and then when you're down there, isn't there something that, you have to keep in mind related to how deep you go and how fast you come up or is that something that you don't really touch on your first time going scuba diving? Yeah. If you're, you know, if you're getting, if you're going to get certified uh, as a certified scuba diver, uh, they'll teach you all of that. But most people's first introduction is something called discover scuba diving where, and I taught this for years, you, uh, you jump on a boat, you know, you do a quick little lesson, uh, you throw your gear on, and you're, you know, you're underwater, right? And you're in 30 feet of water, so, uh, you know, there's really no problems um, at that depth, right? It's, I mean, we've all been in pool, in deep pools, and, you know, you can just swim to the surface, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So then at what point in your journey did you first hear about Bitcoin? Yeah, do you want the story, the, the real story, or do you want the uh, <laughs> the sanitized version? Um, Let, let's hear the real one. I was, uh, I was trying to buy weed we, we on the internet. We can clip it later if we need to. <laughs> no. I was trying to buy weed on the internet. Uh 2012, early 2013. I don't remember the exact time. Just trying to buy weed on the internet. And back then it wasn't very easy. Uh, and so you had to figure a bunch of things out. Um, and that was really my, I mean, I had been talking about it with my friends um, for a while at that point. And so when I was, you know, confronted with a situation where I was in a new place and didn't really know where to, you know, buy some Pacalolo, I said, well, hey, you know, I'd heard about this thing. Let's give it a shot. So I took the time to, you know, figure out how wallets work, uh, acquire some Bitcoin and send, right? Just the basic, uh, you know, the, the three basics of it. Um, and that was my, but it wasn't really until a little bit later that I got, you know, really into it. Uh, and we could go over that in a second. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's fu it's always funny to hear about how different people make their way into Bitcoin. And out, out of curiosity, how many uh, did you ever have any struggles early on with like losing a bunch of Bitcoin or losing your keys or just any of those stories that you hear about a lot of people in the early days running into? No, because I took the time early on to figure it out. Um, you know, I obviously the setup wasn't ideal and I had to correct some things, but no, I, the, yeah, I never had that, that big loss, 
store, except for, you know, I had to sell things to put myself through school, but uh, never had that, that big, that big loss moment. That means that you probably understood it a lot better than most people at that time. It's, I feel like I have so many friends who got in, in a similar type of way where it wasn't necessarily from the technology standpoint, it was more so, Hey, we're looking to buy some weed or buy some drugs. And I feel like a lot of those people ended up just losing the keys or, or losing their Bitcoin or not really understanding how everything works and not properly custodying all their Bitcoin. I wonder if I have my, uh, thumb drive that I stuck it on. This might be it. I might've put it on this little guy here and, uh, stored, you know, my private key on that and tucked it away, uh, for, you know, just a few years, I, I, you know, stuck it away, didn't come back to it for a few years. Uh, and it was, you know, I, uh, I don't even remember how I did it the first time. I know it was wrong, but, uh, I got lucky and didn't lose anything. And then when I plugged it in, by the time I plugged it in again, Electrum, you know, there's desktop wallets, I think. And I was able to just pull it back up. And that was a, that was a big light bulb moment. So what were you doing before for work at, outside of Bitcoin uh, at that time before you, you dove into the industry? I was a diver. Uh, I moved from Georgia to the Florida Keys where I was working as a scuba instructor, met my wife. She was a dolphin trainer. We decided, you know, we met three months later, decided to move as far away from our families as we could possibly get. And that landed us in Hawaii, uh, early, you know, early 2010s. Um, and I was working, you know, I came here, it's, it's a di the dive industry. It's easy to just kind of show up somewhere and get a job, uh, there, you know, it's in demand sort of thing, not great pay. Uh, the other option is underwater water welding, which I was almost. I was about this close to getting into underwater welding, but now that it's been 10, 12 years since I was looking into that, my, uh, my joints are, are happy that I decided to be broke, um, <laughs> instead of chasing money and sacrificing my body for that. Uh, so yeah, we moved out here, you know, started dabbling with Bitcoin in that 23rd, you know, I got to. I got to ride that 2013, 2014 sort of wave. And, you know, for, for better or worse, I decided at that point, oh, wow, I have my bank account has, you know, more than $10 in it <laughs> any one time. Uh, let's go back to school. Uh, so I, you know, sort of went full time. I was able to stop diving. My wife had a, uh, my wife had already finished her undergraduate degree. And so she had a job. We had some, you know, we weren't doing great, but uh, we had enough. And um, yeah, but, you know, with Bitcoin, we were able to go back. I was able to go back to school, get my undergrad degree, uh, doing research. I did uh, flow based iron, dissolved iron methodology development. Um, and, you know, I rolled that right in. I was offered a position as a, a, a graduate assistant 
for my graduate. So I rolled right in from graduate to uh, undergrad to grad in chemical oceanography, uh, all the while just being super interested in Bitcoin. Um, and then, you know, as a graduate student, I uh, having this knowledge about Bitcoin and, of course, you know, talking about it all the time. I realized that, well, hey, I'm, you know, in an analytical chemistry laboratory and I have this office uh, that is, has power, air conditioning. I can't even turn it off. And, uh, you know, the University of Hawaii does not was not known at the time for our IT security. And I was working in this building with industrial, you know, sub-zero freezers with you know, inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometers. So we figure, yeah, we could stick a cut. We could, you know, stick a couple of mining rigs in our offices. Me and a few other graduate students could stick just a couple of mining rigs in our offices, and nobody would notice. And sure enough, nobody did. <laughs> what year was this? God. Oh man. Uh 2017, 2018, you know, close to that run up. I, I caught the timing twice pretty good. Um, yeah, 2017, 2018, caught the timing pretty good. You know, made, all, it's all about making it through the, uh, you know, the dip, right? Um, hodling through the dip, you know, you end up selling at the lows, of course, to, but minimizing that, doing whatever you can. And then, you know, just, I got lucky on timing. Um, yeah. It's always nice when you get the timing right. I was talking with someone actually earlier today about this whole concept of how to do well in the industry, right? And I feel like people like yourself, a lot of the people who come on this podcast have done a lot of the research where if you're really educated and you see on the on Bitcoin and you see where it's going, then it's a lot easier for you to maintain your conviction during the bear cycles. And when the industry has a lot of negative news coming out on it versus if you're someone who got in only hoping to catch a pump and all of a sudden you see the price down 50 percent and you don't understand it, it's going to be a lot harder for you to maintain that conviction and hold on and it's so counterintuitive to human psychology because the human psychology decision at that point, which is the incorrect decision is to go and sell everything after it's just crashed. The hard thing to do is yeah. to make sure that you're holding on to it and maintaining your Bitcoin holdings and not selling it when everything's on discount and when it's on sale. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the easy strategy. Uh, you know, of course you can, if you have, you know, that conviction and you know what's going to happen, right? Uh, you can you can sell the top and then buy the bottom. That's a strategy that works <laughs> as well. Uh, but that takes a lot more time and understanding, right? And luckily, you know, I had been, you know, I look at uh, Andreas Antonopoulos as sort of my, you know, philosopher, Bitcoiner that I uh, really, you know, everything that he was saying in those early days, uh, every book he put out, you know, um, Mastering Bitcoin. I remember 
taking the time to you know, read through that. You know, I, I was in graduate school, so reading textbooks was, and it's still to this day, reading textbooks for me is more fun. I haven't read, uh, I haven't read a good fiction novel in a while, but I'm super excited. Uh, a friend of mine recommended this. Uh, it's called Green War um, by Stephen Gould and Laura J. Mixon. Uh, it's an environmental thriller that I'm excited to... First fiction book I've read in a while. So how do you stay up to date with all the news happening in the industry? Because I feel like there's so much happening all the time and keeping up with everything is just really hard for me personally. I'm wondering how you do it. I don't. <laughs> yeah. I've got, I've got other things to pay attention to now. Uh, you know, there's no wavering in my conv conviction. Bitcoin is the, uh, you know, I'm applying it now to my, my field, right? My oceanographic field and Bitcoin just has a number of properties that there is nothing else in the world that possesses that. Um, and so that makes it really, I, I, I just really don't care about whatever the, you know, the, the drama is, uh, you know, this year I had to, there's two conferences this month. Um, there was the offshore technology conference and then there's, you know, Bitcoin 2023. And, um, you know, I can only, if I want to get anything done, <laughs> you, you, getting work done at a conference is very difficult. So I had to pick between them and, you know, I'm, in the offshore technology industry, right, as well. Uh, and so I had to pick, I had to pick one conference to go to this year, this, this May, and uh, it was offshore technology, right? Uh, Michael, my co-founder, will be attending uh, Bitcoin 2023. But yeah, I have to, I have to be, I have to be at home base, right? Well, I agree with you on that, that when you're traveling for an event, you might think that you're going to get work done, but I feel like most of the time it just doesn't really happen. It's just so difficult to juggle everything. You're ha you have a difficult time just making it to all the events, let alone being able to stay up to date with all the different initiatives that you're trying to push forward. And we're doing a similar type of thing at SAS Mining. I'm going to be there. Kent's going to be there. But we're not bringing the whole team out just because it just takes so much time and so much energy away from whatever the initiatives the company is pushing forward. If you're getting everyone out to an event like that. Yeah. Divide and conquer, right? I'm sorry. What was that? Uh, divide and conquer. Oh yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Last year we had a lot of our team members out there, which was great. And I think that especially for remote-based organizations, it can be very helpful because, you know, if you're in a company and you're in a remote organization, maintaining that culture and that face-to-face -face time is something that's very important. But this year, it just wasn't in the cards for us. <laughs> yeah, it's a bear market too, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the other big thing is like, how, how, how are you going to manage the funds as a Bitcoin mining company in the bear market? Um, it's just like yeah. more work has to get done. So you're able to ride the bull, bull waves. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd like to dive a little bit into um, the work that you're doing 
with your company. What's the, uh, the, the name of your technology? It's OTEC. What, yeah, what does that stand O-Tech, for? OTEC, but we really hate that acronym. Uh, so we're, we're going to start trying to use Ocean Thermal. Uh, it's Ocean Thermal Energy Conversion or OTEC, uh, but it's, you know, Ocean Thermal Energy, right? Everyone knows geothermal, which is the, you know, thermal energy of the planet itself. And uh, ocean thermal is using the thermal energy of the ocean, right? It's in the tropics where I am, it's warm in the surface water, right? And, uh, you know, water has the highest heat capacity of really any fluid. That's why, you know, steam cycles are uh, such an important, you know, part of the industrialization. Um, And uh, you just essentially extract the thermal energy from the surface ocean, right? It's warm at the surface, it's cold deep down below, and if you pull the deep water up, you can just run a Rankine cycle um, based on that temperature differential, right? So how are you applying that at, at your firm? Yeah, so ocean thermal energy has been around for 100 plus years, right? But just like you've never heard of it until I started talking, nobody nobody has heard of this, even though Nikola Tesla worked on it, right? Um, And the reason is that it has a really tough economies of scale problem um, where, you know, you have to build big in order to get that cost of energy down, right? That LCOE uh, down to the five cent range, right? Um, And no one for the last hundred years has really been able to figure that out. Um, And so, you know, as I was mining Bitcoin in my graduate office using stranded electricity, uh, and of course, I was in an oceanographic um, discipline, right? Chemo, uh, marine geology. And that was when I put it together, right? There was a, at the time, there was a lot of, you know, buzz around OTEC or ocean thermal because uh, Mackay Ocean Engineering and Lockheed Martin had built a small scale demonstration plant on the big island of Hawaii. And you know, I was looking in, we had just passed this law that said, oh, we have to be 100% renewable by 2045. So I was doing an analysis of how we can actually do that here in Hawaii, right? Well, we don't have land for solar and we don't have land for wind, similarly. Uh, the geothermal that we have is on a different, on the wrong island, and uh, there's a lot of political palatability issues about exploiting that. And then there's a lot of animosity between, um, you know, the neighbor islands and Oahu, which is where Honolulu is. It's the main population center here. You know, Honolulu is a relatively big city, million plus people. Um, and so I, I identified what's called the Oahu problem. And it's that every other island in Hawaii can get to 100% renewable energy, no problem, 
but Hawaii, we don't have the and on the big on Oahu, we don't have uh, enough land for solar. We don't have enough land for wind and offshore wind. There's just it would be just a massive farm four times the size of Oahu, and so that's that's just simply not going to happen. We don't have enough coastline for wave. Uh, we don't have tides, you know, suitable for tidal energy. And so at the, you know, I'm doing the research, there's these renewable portfolio standard reports. And at the very bottom of these reports, there's a little, you know, footnote that says ocean thermal could provide much more than 100% of our energy. And so there was this disconnect where, oh, well, you know, there's all this hype about ocean thermal and this small scale plant going in on the big island. And the only way that we can get to 100% renewable energy in Hawaii, right? Because we don't have fossil fuel resources. So in order to be, you know, have, you know, energy sovereignty, we have to produce it locally, right? And ocean thermal energy is the only way to do so. So why? Why is there this disconnect? And so I started looking into the problem. Turns out there's this this thing called the Innovation Valley of Death. I don't know if you're familiar with that term. Um, <clears throat> essentially, there's plenty of government funding uh, and research funding for small-scale demonstrations, right? R&D work. Plenty of funding for that because it doesn't cost a lot. And at the large scale, the energy becomes cheap enough to where there's a, you know, the profit motive and it becomes, you know, an easy sell, right? You can get the, you, you can get, you know, loans, you can get, you can raise the capital to do it because it'll be profitable. The issue is that you can't go straight from R&D to 100, 400 megawatt OTEC plants. <laughs> that's a huge, <laughs> that's a big jump, right? And so for the last, uh, you know, 100, 100 plus years, no one has figured out how to make that mid-scale sort of OTEC, uh, ocean thermal plant economically feasible, right? It's too big for the government to just fund, but it's too small to be, you know, attractive for, you know, some company to fund. Um, and the reason for that is that, well, okay, so let's say you build a, somewhere between five and 20 megawatt OTEC plant, ocean thermal plant, uh, let's call it 10 megawatts. Uh, well, you, you have two options. You can moor it in place, right? Anchor it in place and connect it to the grid. It's an offshore technology. So you build a plant on the ocean. Um, you can moor it, anchor it in place, connect it to the grid with a big high voltage cable. Uh, well, the mooring, that's going to take you 10 years to get. Uh, deep water moorings in Hawaii are very difficult to get. You know, so you, if you want to start today, you should have been applying 10 years ago, right? And that's burn. That's, that's just all burn. Um, and then, of course, the cable, the mooring has costs. Now you're, you're in place. You have to survive a hurricane. And all of these things end up to where the cost of energy that that 10 megawatt would produce is just way too high for anyone to stomach, right? We pay 44 cents per kilowatt hour here in the state of Hawaii, um, which, wow. you know, if you're, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All the Bitcoin miners high. know exactly what the cost of energy is and they go, oh shit. 
yeah wow that's crazy i guess it makes uh, sense though but very very high especially when speaking with a miner yeah yeah um you know i have solar panels on the on the house so i don't pay that (laughs) but everybody else you understand energy too well to pay that And, uh, you know, and even with 44 cents per kilowatt hour, a 10 megawatt OTEC plant connected to the Hawaiian grid would just be even more expensive than that. You know, 50, 50 cents, you know, 56 cents per kilowatt hour is what our estimate would be. Uh, And so that's one option, which essentially is a complete financial loss because no one would buy that energy. The other option is what's called a grazing or a mobile plant where you're not connected in place, right? You're not anchored to the ground. You're not connected to the grid. But of course, yeah, it's cheaper and faster to stand up. But who are you going to sell the energy to? So this has been the dilemma for the last hundred years. And everybody who's looked at this problem has tried to throw secondary products on there. Like, oh, let's produce hydrogen or let's produce ammonia or let's desalinate water and then set up some logistical transport uh, to, you know, shuttle that, that secondary product off one of these grazing plants in the middle of the ocean, right? Uh, and again, all of that ends up costing too much and no one will buy the secondary product. Um, and so either way, you, you know, either of the two ways led to a complete financial loss. And so there's just, there was just no appetite. And at one point, the government had fully funded a, uh, you know, the Carter administration fully funded a 40 megawatt OTEC plant or ocean thermal plant here in Hawaii. Um, and that that project was headed by uh, our now chief research officer, Dr. Luis Vega. Um, and of course, when Carter was not reelected, uh, and the Reagan administration took over, you know, they took the solar panels off the roof and then cut the funding, right? Uh, complete right out, right out from under him. They had, they had had everything ready to go on a 40 megawatt plant, which is right about where, you know, it's, they skipped that innovation valley of death and just went straight to the big plant, which, you know, it took a bunch of time, took a bunch of extra money. Uh, and then, you know, the political whim at the time just cut the cut their legs off, so that didn't happen. Um, and so, yeah, it was just complete financial loss, or you had to rely on the government, which of course is fickle. And so, what we figured out, I was mining Bitcoin. Like I said, I was mining Bitcoin uh, in my graduate office. On that, you know, at the time it was thirty cents per kilowatt hour, but I wasn't paying that. <laughs> uh, and I said, well, hey let's stick a bunch of Bitcoin miners on the boat and disconnect it from the grid, co-locate a Bitcoin mine on the vessel. Don't get a mooring, choose the grazing option, right? Because, you know, Bitcoin mining doesn't require a lot of bandwidth. So a satellite connection is plenty. What is it? You know, one megabyte a week, (laughs) Um, (laughs) you know, tiny little headers. You know, all of those calculations are internal. Um, so what what I figured out uh, during graduate school is you could co-locate uh, a Bitcoin mining 
you know, data center on the vessel, take that vessel, move it to the warmest spot in the, on, on planet Earth, which is in the Indo-Pacific warm pool, sort of north of uh, PNG, Papua New Guinea. <clears throat> and because it's at the, because OTEC, uh, ocean thermal functions on that delta T difference in temperature between warm and cold. Well, every degree Celsius, you know, higher sea surface temperature you get, you're getting 15% more energy. So by moving that plant from Hawaii to just north uh, in international waters of, you know, PNG, you can actually double, effectively double the output of, you know, take a 10 megawatt plant based in Hawaii, move it to PNG, it's now producing 20 megawatts, right? So, and you end up roughly cutting the capital expense in half. So you're doubling the energy, cutting the capex in half. Um, and with Bitcoin mining, you're not adding any logistical or operational complexity to it, right? It's, you know, these, these things are, <laughs> they're, they're, they do the calculations very fast, right? They run the out, uh, you know, the SHA-256 fast, but at the end of the day, they're pretty dumb machines, right? It's a, a, a space heater. <laughs> um, and so you're doubling the output. You're cutting the capex in half, and you have a guaranteed source of revenue, right? And so, you know, I started looking into, uh, you know, looking through the literature, finding out, you know, capital cost estimations um, that were done. Again, Dr. Luis Vega, who had done this back in 2010. So, you know, you do a cost escalation with inflation to whatever that was that I did this. And then now you have, uh, because the Bitcoin network is so public, uh, you can just say, okay, well, let's say I built this, moved it to the equator and ran it. Um, you know, what would the, you know, what would the revenue look like based on real world data from Bitcoin mining? And it turned out that it would have paid for itself four times over. Um, and so that was, you know, kind of the impetus for that. Um, and so over, you know, over a few years, I kept thinking about this, doing, you know, bits and pieces, but it wasn't really until I found my co-founder, um, Michael Bennett, um, Michael Hawaii on Twitter, um, <laughs> that we really started to look into this as a business, because at the end of the day, the ocean is the largest untapped energy resource on planet Earth. Uh, the, the tropical oceans where o o ocean thermal is viable happen to represent 40% of all the solar irradiance that's available to humanity. Um, you know, the oceans and the Pacific Ocean is big. Um, and, you know, we did some, you know, TAM calculations and we did, you know, we built a business uh, together. You know, it takes, you know, Michael's a business genius. And I'm the crazy, you know, oceanographer. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like you guys are a really good pairing that you've got the business side, you've got the scientific mind. And when you just hear like, this is the most in-depth that I've gone into this topic here with you live. And just as someone who even understands Bitcoin mining at, I would say a very proficient level, it sounds 
magical when I really try and consider the possibilities of what does it mean for humanity if you can harness all the energy available through ocean thermal energy? And how do we actually begin to operationalize this new energy source? And so based on your calculations and everything that you've learned, what are some of those key numbers or key figures or even key milestones that you believe that we need to cross in order to really begin implementing this type of energy source at larger and larger scale? We need metal in the water on the 10 megawatt, you know, pilot, pilot plant. Um, that's, that is the only barrier and, you know, everybody else, uh, we just got back from the offshore technology conference and the ocean thermal, uh, energy symposium and everybody else is really concerned with grid connection. So everybody in the ocean thermal sort of sphere is concerned with grid connection. But the super majors, right, you know, your, your shells, your exons, your Petrobras, uh, none of them are concerned right now with uh, grid connection. And so the grazing option, you know, not only does it cut off that 10 year mooring time, right, you're in international waters, so the time to deployment is much, much faster. And so they're interested in getting metal in the water as soon as possible because, well, at the end of the day, uh, renewable energy is not going to be able to satiate humanity's thirst for energy, right? There's just not enough of it today. Not that it won't do that in the future, but if we don't want to have, you know, mass starvation, death, uh, you know, either from freezing in the winter or, you know, if wet bulb temperature hits 35 degrees C, which it's approaching <laughs> in some parts of the world right now, um, we need, we're going to need more energy. Um, and so what they're looking at as we, you know, as a society ramp up renewable energy and, you know, decrease fossil fuel use over the next 50, 60 years, um, <clears throat> they're looking at decarbonizing the life cycle of, you know, from oil, from extraction to combustion. And then, you know, and so what they're looking at is, and this is, one of the things that we really picked up on and that was made very apparent at the offshore technology conference is they're looking at, you know, we're going to be pumping oil guaranteed, uh, you know, and offshore deposits, we've kind of already taken what we can from onshore deposits, terrestrial deposits, and we've been moving further and further offshore. And so what they're looking at, is they need a source of energy, renewable energy to power those operations, right? Because right now they're getting getting high on their own supply, right? They're burning their fuel to power the extraction of more fuel. And so what they're looking at is different sources of renewable energy to power their what are called floating production storage offloading vessels. These are $2 billion ships um, that, you know, extract oil from reserves. Uh, and OTEC, Ocean Thermal, is the only renewable energy source that's one, it's baseload, can do that. 
So you decarbonize the extraction process. Then you can use ocean thermal to power the shipping to transport that. And then at the source of combustion, you can have CO2 scrubbers, right? So you capture that CO2. And then you take that CO2 that you've captured after burning and generating the energy, and they're shoving it back into the ground. <laughs> Supercritical CO2 and just shoving it back into the ground, right? You know, you pull the chemicals out and you put them right back in. Um, and so this on the surface seems like, a, you know, a, a viable stopgap. Uh, and they're looking at ocean thermal as a way to do that. And so by with Bitcoin enabling us to get a, to what we assume is a, you know, we're calculating as a profitable pilot. Once we get what's called first oil, right, on this resource, you, at, at that moment, and you've proven it out at scale, you know, utility scale with a pilot plant, then you can go, then it's, you know, the, the door swings open and you're building 100, 400 megawatt uh, OTEC as refueling hubs, you know, say in the Gulf, uh, or, you know, just one-to-one -one plants, because a lot of these $2 billion FPSOs use about 95 megawatts, which happens to be, you know, the target size, right? Um, and this is really what they're looking at, and this is really, this, this is, this is their plan, uh, and they're very much interested. So we're, we're focused on, you know, ocean industries. It's just a tremendous amount of power that you're talking about here. I mean, you're talking about even just the pilot being 10 megawatts. How does that cost per kilowatt hour scale, just in very simple terms, at 10 megawatts, your estimated average cost per kilowatt hour is X. And then once it reaches scale at 400 megawatts, the cost will be X. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, most LCOE calculations are all bullshit, right? Uh, <laughs> it's very hard to make that estimate. But, you know, we do have quotes on a number of the key components. Um, and we're looking at for uh, based on, you know, again, that 2x the energy. So that really helps. And roughly 50% of the CapEx, including time to deploy, right? Uh, you're looking at sub 10 cents per kilowatt hour, which is generally higher than, uh, you know, a lot of Bitcoin mining operations, right? You're chasing that, you know, sub five cent normally. But one thing Ocean Thermal has going for it is we have unlimited cold available to us. So the cooling becomes free. We can cool it to, you know, keep, keep stable cold temperature, at the optimum temperature, um, one of our uh, one of our advisors um, is Reed Browning uh, from from Cathedra, and he's done a lot of work. He's the CTO over there at Cathedra, and he's done a lot of work with uh, you know optimum um, temperature, optimum voltage, optimum frequency, and yeah, so. <clears throat> sub 10 cents is what we're targeting and it's not you know it's not we're not going to be the mo at 10 megawatts or 20 megawatts at the equator it's not going to be the you know the best operation but it's better than anything 
any revenue is better than a complete financial loss, right? Um, and then once you get to, you know, that's 10 megawatts. And so we chose this sort of 10 megawatt because the uh, Dr. Luis Vega uh, did a great analysis of the economies of scale. And the 10 megawatt is right at the inflection point. Um, it's the, you know, the smallest, biggest size that starts to take advantage of that, um, you know, economies of scale. But once you get to, you know, 100 megawatt OTEC and the cost curves have come down because now there's, right now there's just no, no one who produces the, you know, the heat exchanger size that we would need. There's no one who's, you know, building uh, the large pipes that we would need for that size. So everything, you know, on that first of its kind, the folk, 100 megawatt. At 10 megawatt, we can get everything off the shelf. 100 megawatt, there's some custom-made things, which, of course, are going to increase the price. But as we've seen from wind and solar, those, you know, cost curves have just come down so drastically. And we have some, you know, preliminary data that suggests that, yeah, it, this is just a manufacturing problem. Uh, at the 100 megawatt, it's a manufacturing problem. So, you know, at the 100 megawatt size, depending on the configuration, again, you're looking at five cent per kilowatt hour for the first of its kind. And then as those cost curves come down, <clears throat> of course, so does the cost of energy. So that's really, you know, we're, we're targeting that sub five cents. Um, So you'd mentioned how one of the people in the industry who's shaped your views in a big way is Andreas Antonopoulos. And I'm curious as to what types of messages that he's talked about have resonated with you and shaped the way that you view Bitcoin and why you believe Bitcoin is important to the world. It's a great question. Um, I mean, mastering Bitcoin, uh, that's that's the one. Um, you know, the textbook, right? Uh, that one really struck a chord. And then I've, I've read through all the, it's been a long time since I've listened to his lectures, but it's probably time to go back. And I've read through all of his, uh, that what's the series? Um, God, it's been a while since I've looked into this, but you know, the, at the end of the day, Bitcoin is a tool, and that's really what I took away from it. Um, you know, it's not controlled by anyone, and it, you know, because it that was the key innovation that Satoshi realized. Everything else already existed, right? You know, blockchain, proof of work, all that work had been done previously, right? All the, the pieces for it existed. And it was the sort of immaculate conception that made Bitcoin different, right? Every every other coin, you know, all the shit coins, the Ponzi schemes, they all have a guy at the top who owns 90%, right? With Bitcoin, there is no guy at the top. And so you get all this infighting, which I don't pay attention to anymore uh, outside of, you know, some people are, uh, you know, they yell at each other, right? We're always fighting, right? Bitcoiners are rabid. You know, it's like the Catholics and the Protestants, right? And that's a, that's a, that's a really beneficial thing to have is that, uh, you know, internal, internal fighting. Because, 
if there was no internal fighting, that would mean that there's somebody at the top dictating what's going on, right? Um, so that's, you know, the, t the ability to, you know, for a country to gain economic sovereignty, right? Rather than, you know, being at the whim of the U.S., having, you know, having your currency either pegged to the U.S. or, you know, some other country, I guess now China is doing, uh, moving into that space. But, um, yeah, it, the sovereignty, uh, and, and I look at it, unlike a lot of people, you know, they're, oh, all fiat is bad. It's not necessarily true. There have been the, the most productive time and the best economic system humanity has ever experienced was a dual system um, at the beginning of Bretton Woods, right? When you had the US dollar pegged to gold, redeemable in gold, uh, at least for you know sovereigns, and then every other currency floating against it, right? And during that time, you know, it was, it was the best economic conditions for the developing world. We rebuilt Europe, you know, America built out our manufacturing industries. Um, and then of course, 1971 hit and uh, we took, <laughs> we stopped that. And, you know, we lost our manufacturing. Uh, you know, we, we chased higher and higher returns, riskier bets. You know, the interest rates came down. Um, and so I really see that dual system where, you know, you have Bitcoin as the world's reserve currency, right? You know, there's a lot of benefits to having a fiat currency, right? If you have an issue, you know, if there's a big natural disaster, which are going to become increasingly <laughs> frequent, uh, or you need the ability to print money. I mean, it's a, it's a huge benefit for a sovereign, right? And, um, but you have to have that sort of stable rock. If everything is floating, right, there is no reference point. Uh, you have to pick a reference point. And Bitcoin is the ideal candidate to be that reference point because, you know, it's tied to energy and energy is the fundamental currency of the universe, everything functions on energy, right? We, you know, we, we store energy in little phosphate bonds and, and we <laughs> break them, we make them and break them. And we can use that energy, you know, life uses energy, stars, black holes use energy. It's the, it's the fundamental currency of life and tying your, you know, tying the world reserve currency to that it's just, it's a brilliant strategy, right? You, if you're not tied to anything, well, then you, you end up with what we've got here. Yeah, it's a question that I've been thinking about. If you're in charge of creating a prosperous, successful society, you want price signals to be as honest as possible. You want a currency that underpins your society that is tied to the laws of thermodynamics that is tied to yeah. first principles thinking rather than what we have today, as you mentioned, which is a world in which we're not on a sound money system. We're far away from what we once had with the gold standard. And 
Bitcoin, I agree with you. If we're going to go and look into a magic ball and look into the future, my bet would be that you're going to have a, a world that wants that stable economic unit of account that is tied to real world, world energy, which yeah. seems to be Bitcoin at this point in time. And it's, you know, I wrote this, this paper, um, back in 2017, uh, call it the, the green industrial revolution. And I shopped it around the university to, you know, my, my professors, the dean of the school, the, uh, a famous individual, at least in the, you know, the Bitcoin community, Dr. Camilo Mora. I don't know if you're familiar with the Mora at all paper. Um, no, what's this that? is the paper that it's the only paper that, uh, Greenpeace cites, uh, as Bitcoin is bad for the environment. It was, um, you know, it's the, it, it's really what kicked off the whole Bitcoin is bad for the envi environment because it was, oh, Bitcoin can, you know, alone will, uh, push us over the two degrees Celsius limit. Um, and you know, it was the, and then it's, it, it may have been my fault. Uh, you know, he's really? out of UH, uh, I'm familiar and good friends with, uh, the three, well, the second and third author, author are friends. And Dr. Mora is, uh, someone I shopped my, you know, Bitcoin green industrial revolution sort of paper. And, you know, the, the thesis of the paper, and there's a little section in there about OTEC because I had just started putting it together. But the, the thesis was that just like the space race can be competed in from anywhere on Earth, right? It's uh, Bitcoin can be competed any, you know, for anywhere on Earth. So, you know, places that have a lot of renewable energy, like, yeah, and then now we've seen it with, you know, Costa Rica. I, I theorized this five years, six years now ago, that, you know, developing countries would start to do major industrial projects around renewable energy. And then, you know, when you build a major piece of, uh, you know, a, a, a big power plant, you don't build for what you need today. You build for what you expect you're going to need in 30 years, right? And so for you know, your hydrocarbon resources, that's easy. You just don't burn the additional fuel, right? And so it doesn't really cost that much. But for renewable resources where you have a near zero cost for, you know, marginal energy, marginal cost, um, that's a huge problem because now you're subsidizing all of that, you know, curtailed capacity uh, with the smaller amount of energy. So you get increased, you know, increased cost of energy. But what Bitcoin allows you to do is to build that big piece of infrastructure. Even if you're using just a small amount of it, you can monetize that full capacity, right? And that, you know, developing nations who have, you know, either don't have their own currency or have a currency that is, you know, subject to wild fluctuations, inflation, et cetera, they would look to, you know, start to harness 
the natural energy that they have available to them, um, whether it be sun or hydro or geo or wind or tidal, whatever they have. And then as they build, then you build out that capacity, right? Humanity and civilization was built around the, you know, transport hubs, the coast, along rivers. Um, but modern society, right, we're, we figured that out. We have trains, we have, you know, major shipping. We can, we can get goods from where we need to be, from where we are to where they need to be relatively simply and cheaply. Modern society is built around energy. And so if you, you know, think field of dreams, if you build it, they will come. So if you can build, you know, a gigawatt of uh, hydropower, even if the local, you know, population only needs 20, 50 megawatts, because that cheap energy, right, if you're able to monetize a full gigawatt of, you know, say hydropower, well, now the cost of that energy is so cheap that you're going to have an influx, right? And this is really what, what's needed to weather the, you know, the, the worst effects of climate change is you have to, people need to go where the energy is because those are the places that are going to be most resilient to flooding, tidal, you know, incursions, salt, you know, uh, salt water incursions into the aquifers, um, hurricanes. And so you need, society needs to have, uh, but of course you can't be prescriptive. You can't say, you can't force someone to say, hey, you got to move there. You got to make it so attractive, right? That there's just no, it, it just becomes obvious and that they seek out that lowest cost of energy. And then, you know, and Bitcoin is the key to doing that. And that was kind of the thesis of this paper is that you'll start seeing these hubs and people will build, you know, build the energy resource before the society is there, before the rest of the infrastructure is there. You monetize it during the early days with Bitcoin and then you start to build around it, right? Just like with transport hubs. And OTEC, you know, there's a little section is like, oh, you know, OTEC is ideal for this as well. Um, but yeah, and I took that paper. I, you know, talked about this with the second and third author who are, you know, fantastic people. And then I took it to Camila Mora and those second and third authors were the TAs, the um, teaching assistants in the class. There's an undergraduate class that wrote the paper and decided to write it. But the... Uh, yeah, they took that idea, proposed it to the class as a, you know, their their assignment for the, the semester, right? It was a, you know, how to publish papers, learn about the publishing process. And um, yeah, so I, I, I inadvertently <laughs> uh, spawned this this paper that is now plaguing us. So I have a, I feel like a personal responsibility <laughs> to sort of put a put an end to that, right? <laughs> Well, that that's a very very interesting story um you know one piece that i really want to get your take on is a question that i've been trying to figure out the answer to myself and so as someone from your perspective who is would it be fair to categorize you as a climate scientist um and i'm an oceanographer that is yeah 
Okay, yeah. So, so as someone with that type of background who understands the literature, and I believe you fall into the camp of people that say unequivocally the scientific consensus that you have around the world is that climate change is real. The question is how we address it. With that question in the mind's eye and then covering everything that we touched on with energy consumption being important, how do you balance this in your thinking, right? One being that climate change is real, climate change is bad, and we've got to address it. But simultaneously, energy consumption is good for humanity. We want to make sure that we increase humanity's energy consumption in order to better the standard of living around the world. Because a lot of people look at one side of this equation and you'll see them say, look, climate change is bad. Climate change is real. We need to prohibit the development of energy capacity in these other parts of the world. And simultaneously, many of the people uh, who are promoting this type of thinking are consuming over 30 times as much energy as some of the areas in which they're trying to prevent the development of energy resources. And this is a very nuanced question, a very nuanced point. Yeah. And I don't think that there is a tried and true right answer, like this person's right, this person's wrong. But it's something that I've been trying to wrap my brain around and try and figure out, okay, we've got these big problems, we've got these technologies, and we've got these goals and solutions. How do you solve it? And I feel like you're someone that would be a great person to go and tackle that question with. Yeah. And, um, I mean, that's that that exact question is why, you know, me and Michael uh, started this business. Right. Um, you know, the issue is that there are three point two to three point four billion people who are at risk of, you know, the deleterious effects of climate change right? going into the future. And, you know, this this year, El Nino is about to hit us like a son of a. Um, you know, Southeast Asia is hitting all time high and temperature records. We're pushing the wet bulb temperature to, you know, if wet, again, if wet bulb hits 35 degrees Celsius, thousands of people die of heat. Um, can, can you explain that just for, because I, I, I personally don't know what that what that term like like the terminology means and the ramifications of it sure so you know you, you have your thermometer right and it says you know right now my thermometer says in here i got i, don't know, I keep it nice at about 68 because i'm a big hairy guy uh <laughs> but the but you also have to take into effect wind you have to take into effect humidity. And so wet bulb temperature is, a, you know, a thermometer with essentially a wet, damp cloth around it. Right. And because as you know, if it's hot, that water starts to evaporate. And when you evaporate, right, that has a cooling effect on the environment around it. So that, you know, you have the wet, uh, like a wet cloth around a temperature, uh, you know, a thermometer as, you know, the heat causes it to evaporate that has a cooling effect so it's slightly lower than you know the the ambient temperature right and the human body starts to break down right that's what sweats for that's what that's what the body does with sweat right uh it's a cooling effect and it's one of humanity's superpowers and so but the human the human body starts to 
stops functioning at around 35 degrees Celsius when you're measuring that wet bulb temperature, right? So, you know, and then that's with, you know, roughly 100% humidity. If it's 44 degrees like it was in Vietnam, uh, Celsius, that's Celsius, right? So what is that? 100, 110, 115, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't really deal with the imperial system. Very, it's very hot. It's, it's pretty <laughs> dumb. Um, and a lot of people don't have, uh, you know, air conditioning. They can't sit. I, I live in Hawaii. It's humid as hell. Sit in a room with, you know, AC. People don't have that, right? Um, and it's, it's just wrong to say, hey, you know, as the developing world, we're, you know, we're in, you know, I'm a U.S. and Canadian citizen. We went in, we discovered, you know, oil. We went into the world and extracted all that easy, you know, sweet crude that bubbles up to the surface. We went around the world and stole all of it to industrialize ourselves, right, over the last 150 years, right? Um, all that easy energy is not there anymore. Uh, and so, you know, how do we as a society, as a, you know, the developing world say, Hey, look, sorry, <laughs> you can't industrialize, right? Uh, that's, that's, that's just wrong. We can't do that. Right. We can't say, I'm sorry. If you guys burn as much fossil fuel, as, as much hydrocarbons as we did, um, well, then we all die, right? That's, that's kind of the, uh, you know, it's not, not that we all die, but civilization are, you know, globally spanning civil interconnected civilization will, that, that social structure breaks down. If they start to industrialize at the same scale, using the same fuels as we did, um, but well, they don't, there's not enough, um, there aren't enough hydrocarbons left to do that for them anyway. Right. Uh, if, you know, the 6 billion people who don't have access to the same amount of energy as we do in the developing world, there's simply not enough hydrocarbons to do that. Uh, and I mean, it's completely unreasonable at this point to say, oh, yeah, we're going to build natural gas pipelines through, you know, the Saharan desert, through, you know, regions of political conflict, right? Uh, that, that's a recipe for a disaster. One, you know, natural gas is uh, incredibly capital intensive, requires a lot of infrastructure, and the places that need that energy, it's the last, you know, major source of energy um, that there's a lot, there's, you know, it's the largest remaining source of energy, natural gas, but you can't build that infrastructure in a lot of these places. So, you know, when we look at the developing world and how they've sort of adapted to this tech, you know, this problem before, you know, with us, we had telephone cables, right? Um, we had railroads, telephone, you know, you, you built the telephone and telegraph lines or along the railroads. Um, you know, we built cars, road infrastructure, right? Uh, well, they, you can't, again, similar kind of infrastructure problem where a lot of the places that many, many people live don't have the ability to, you know, build that infrastructure. Think, 
think like, uh, you know, in Europe where, you know, the cart, uh, you know, we had horse-drawn carriages, right? Um, because we had the landscape, the climate that facilitated that road. And a lot of people, you know, in the developing world say, oh, well, you know, a lot of these civilizations didn't, didn't invent the wheel or no, they invented the wheel. The camel was a superior technology for them where they were because, you know, the camel doesn't need water. It doesn't break down. You don't have to build roads. It can walk through the desert for hundreds and hundreds of miles, right? The camel was a far superior technology for the, you know, the areas where the camel was adopted. So when you think about, uh, you know, again, thousand years ago, right? Uh, they had the wheel in selective locations, but they adopted the camel. And so when you look at modern society, well, they never, the developing world did not build out the telephone infrastructure, right? They leapfrog the technology straight to cell phones. And so distributed, right? Instead of centralized infrastructure, distributed sources. So in a similar, uh, you know, manner, I look at with energy, right? And renewable energy is distributed, right? It's not everywhere. The same energy resource isn't everywhere. Um, but having so you can now build, you know, solar panels, you can have a PV infrastructure in a far flung village, right? Providing them, you know, and, and not everybody at the moment needs 24 seven renewable, uh, you know, base load energy, right? It's great. But at the moment, they have zero energy. And so getting some energy and then building out that is really in a distributed fashion. And then, you know, on the other hand, it's like, well, you don't have, again, OTEC does work in the tropics. So there's about a billion human beings that directly can benefit from ocean thermal resources as a base load, right? Most people live on the coast in the tropics. O ocean thermal is perfect for there. But for a lot of the far-flung villages, you know, again, a lot, most of humanity lives in the tropics. They do have solar resources available. Um, and so one of the industries that we're targeting is the deep sea mining operations. Um, there's these little polymetallic nodules like this that contain uh, all the cobalt uh, manganese, copper, nickel that's required, right? Uh, there's $60 trillion worth of those minerals sitting on the seafloor, right on the seabed. Uh, you know, they're not buried underneath. They're just sitting flush on the seafloor. Um, and, you know, we don't have enough terrestrial resources to build all that PV infrastructure, to build all those batteries, right? And make it cheap and not use slave labor in the Congo, right? And so one of the, you know, offshore industries that we're targeting, uh, you know, for the future is being able to provide power to these deep sea mining operations um, because there are the resources in the ocean and it's far less, uh, you know, impactful um, than, you know, clear cutting the Congo, right? Or the way nickel and manganese are, uh, you know, mined. Uh, and it can be done, you know, it's, it's done far more ethically and it really represent outside of Bitcoin, it represents the, uh, really the, the most equitable distribution of wealth that 
humanity has ever seen because it's the common resource of humanity. So there's been an effort to make sure that, you know, developing worlds have access to certain plots of land or <laughs> seafloor that they can then extract the minerals and, you know, energy abundance is the key. So we have to get them energy. And the, the way that we did it as in the developing world isn't going to work for them, right? Everywhere is different, right? Uh, and you have to go distributed and, you know, renewable energy is the key, right? Uh, you get people start migrating as, you know, their, their crops fail, as the rain patterns change or, you know, flooding, they start to seek out lower costs of energy, which are you know, only going to be renewable energy because, as they start, as if we start to burn more, the cost of energy is, on hydrocarbons is just going to keep going up, right? I don't know what you're paying for for gas. Uh, you know, I know what I'm paying. You know, the state of Hawaii pays 44 cents per kilowatt hour for our fossil fuels um, energy. They can't handle that. There's that's never going to work for them. But zero marginal cost energy sources, those do work for them right um yeah it, i mean it's a it's a tough situation that's why me and michael are building this business is because we can have just a huge effect on energy prosperity around the globe and bitcoin is the catalyst for it that's a very interesting perspective and i think that one of the key points if i was to say this back uh, that I hadn't really thought of in terms of this analogy, but I think that you laid it out very well, is just like how the developing world leapfrogs us in certain technologies, just like with the... A, a new, another example of that is online banking, but you could talk about cellular access, whatever it may be. In the energy sector, you have a leapfrogging technology with renewables where the marginal cost of electricity is trending towards being virtually free. So that is the technology that they're going to and should leverage to leapfrog us who are reliant or more reliant on non-renewable energy sources. Did I say and that back correctly? To, that is absolutely correct. And we can afford in the developing world to, you know, as I laid out the, you know, decarbonizing the entire life cycle of hydrocarbons right from extraction to combustion and then literally that's what they're doing is they're shoving it back into the ground supercritical co2 cycles right um shoving those those molecules back into the ground after we took them out and burned them uh we can stomach that a lot better than they can uh and we have you know in the developing world sort of an obligation to assist our you know fellow humans because at the end of the day again i look out at the horizon i don't look up at the stars there is no future for humanity in space this planet we have is our spaceship and it has everything everyone needs to survive all the water all the energy i mean the solar irradiance alone 
with less than, with, you know, 0.1% of all the solar irradiance that hits the planet, if we can harvest that, we have so much energy. And, you know, it's, it's, it comes back to, you know, grid infrastructure, right? Being able to move energy to where it's needed. And, you know, what Europe is doing now is they're looking at, you know, building out a common grid so that when it's sunny in the summer, Southern Europe is providing energy to the north. And when it's windy during the winter, you know, the North Sea is generating so much energy that it pumps it down to Southern Europe. And that's just on, you know, a regional scale that that really needs to be built out at the um, the continent scale, right? The hemisphere scale. And so one of the interesting long term applications and kind of the you know, outside of the ocean industries um, market, the really, you know, long-term vision for how OTEC can really help the world is not necessarily directly powering the grid, but what we call the um, string of pearls strategy with, uh, I think it's it's, roughly 250 ocean thermal plants, all located at the equator, so there's no hurricanes to deal with, connected with, you know, all connected in a row with high, a high voltage cable, you know, and so when it's sunny on one side of the planet, the energy can travel across the ocean. Now, because you have, you know, a daisy chained power plants, you're not getting those huge, massive losses that you would expect in transporting energy, you know, for far. Um, you know, when it's sunny on one side, you're pumping energy to the other side, right? And amplifying it along the way with, you know, these ocean thermal plants, uh, roughly every 25 kilometers. Uh, and then when it's, you know, when the sun goes to the other side of the planet, you just reverse the direction, right? And you can have this, you know, through the Pacific, the Indian, the Atlantic Ocean, connecting all the grids, right? Um, and that's really kind of the vision that we see. Hearing you talk about that is, first off, mind-blowing, but it almost, <laughs> it, it reminds me of, it, it reminds me of a conversation I was having the other day where, I'll I'll have it with you right now. Imagine that you're dropped on an island, right? And you're the first human. The world that you're seeing at that point in time is just unbelievable. The, the world compared to the world that we're living in today. Like the world we're living in today, it's pretty incredible to to think about what our species has created. Just I mean, look at what we're doing right here having this podcast that other people are going to be able to tune into and listen to and don't have to be around for pause, rewind, go forward, just unbelievable technology. How, how many years do you think it would take for you and a group of 10 people to actually start to begin to build the world that we have around us today? Whew. Thousands. I don't think I'd ever be. We know how long we know how long it took. It took, I think, uh, you know, agriculture. It was 200,000, 200,000 years ago, right? That was the first advent of uh, agriculture. And then you get specialization. 
and you just continue to build. Uh, you know, I, I think about, um, I think about what would have happened if Rome hadn't collapsed and, you know, all that knowledge just lost, you know, if they had discovered calculus. If we had already had calculus, you know, a thousand years before, uh, but it just takes, it's trial and error, right? And that, that takes a long time, it takes a long time to evolve. You know, that's, that's how we got here, right? If from, uh, you know, the mud that we, or the, the, the deep sea vents that we, you know, that life sprang from, uh, you know, reducing iron to where we are today took billions of years, right? But then you get, you know, it's compounding. So you get explosion of, uh, you, know, you get the Cambrian explosion, you get the industrial revolution, similar. Um, yeah, that's that was the first question that came to my mind as I was hearing you talk about how we're going to have this interconnected system where the sun on one side is powering and that energy can move to the other side. I'm just thinking in my mind, how in the world do we build this? Like, when do you see that vision coming to fruition where we're able to harness that type of energy and transport it in a system similar to what you just explained? So we're going to get to first oil, first oil on ocean thermal energy uh, by the end of the decade. Um, you know, our target is 2027, 2028. Then you add in some buffer zone course because always things go wrong it always so, takes you know, longer by end of the decade <laughs> by end of the decade we're getting to first oil uh from there we're building 100 megawatts with the first one you know the the second one takes a lot shorter time right you built out the the 10 megawatt happens to be a single module of uh you know uh, a modular system so once the 10 megawatt is is done then you just duplicate, right? You put, you string 10 of those together, you get a hundred megawatts, right? Um, so the second one we're looking at, you know, 32, uh, you start with the offshore industries, you know, powering FPSOs, powering deep sea mining operations, you know, and a lot of that starts to come online, really ramp up through the 2030s. Um, 2040, 2050, and then as you start, you know, shifting the, uh, the, um, you know, the shipping industry starts decarbonizing, uh, you use the, what, what's called the truck stop of the ocean model, uh, where you have a, again, a bunch of refueling plants, instead of building hydrogen infrastructure or ammonia infrastructure or methanol production on land at every single port in the world. That's a, that's a, that's just ridiculous. Um, you centralize that infrastructure to large scale OTEC plants at the equator, right? So you start building those 400 megawatt OTEC ocean thermal plants at the equator. You're producing methanol for the shipping industry, right? And, you know, instead of refueling at port, you're refueling in transit. Um, and as you start building that out, that infrastructure out, you know, you build one at a time, one at a time, and then you start connecting them. So 
you know, you can have one of these plants roughly, it harvests the thermal energy from around a you know, 25 square kilometer region. Think, you know, solar power, solar plants, right? Uh, a, a solar, a PV farm, 25 square kilometers. Uh, and that's roughly, you know, instead of having all that infrastructure in the ocean, you just use the water as that, that PV infrastructure. So it's centralized. Um, you know, you start with them, you know, every, every hundred kilometers. So then you only need, you know, 50 of these things. And we have the pipe, you know, we have the, the ability to lay those cables. And so as you know, you, I, and I haven't done this, I haven't figured out the exact, how far you would want those first ones to go before you laid that cable connecting the two grids. Uh, you know, you have one at Ecuador, you have one side at Ecuador, you have one side with branches off to Indonesia, the Philippines. On the other side, you have Brazil, you know, that goes around, there's a branch off to India to power Asia. Uh, you know, you have, um, you know, you have, so Brazil to, you know, I think Nigeria. Um, I mean, this is a hundred year project, right? Uh, I mean, what we're talking about is building the largest energy company on planet earth, right? Uh, connecting the world's grids. Um, and it's going to be a long, a long, a long battle. It's going to be hard, but it's compounding, right? So it's going to take a lot of work to get to the first one, the second one less so, and then now you're just duplicating from there. And uh, yeah, so I, when will that go live? I have no idea. When will we get to Mars? Again, never. I, I don't, but I don't, this is actually a realistic vision. I don't think we're ever going to go to Mars. Really? It's funny because I feel like I've met so many more people that see Mars as something so much more feasible. And listening to you here, it's just mind blowing where I can follow the steps and see how it happens, especially if the technology to actually execute on it's available. It seems like it makes sense to do something like this, especially if the economics make sense. It's yeah. A, you know, ocean thermal is a dumb technology, kind of like Bitcoin, right? It's, it's, it look, it sounds fancy, but it's, it's really simple. It's a Rankine cycle. It's a steam engine. We've had these things for 150 years. We're really good at making turbines. Heat exchangers are, are prime for, you know, uh, an assembly line. You, you just get a roll of titanium punch plates. You get, you gasket them up, smush them together. You know, not a lot of human interaction. So those cost curves come down. The pipes, uh, you know, HDPE, uh, easy to extrude. Um, they're actually building, we, they're building a, uh, a new uh, four meter uh, extrusion, you know, four meter in diameter pipe uh, extrusion, uh, you know, factory in Ecuador. So that's very, uh, <laughs> that was a good piece of knowledge to know because that makes transport to, uh, you know, the Indo-Pacific very, very simple. Um, and I mean, all of this technology just exists. Uh, you don't have to invent anything. You don't have to, uh, you know, it, it's not going to blow up as we, <laughs> we saw last week or two weeks ago. Um, 
It's boats. Baby, we've been sa we've been sailing the oceans. The Polynesians, you know, were uh, you know colonizing the Pacific thousands of years ago, right? Boats. We know boats. We know the ocean. Space. You can't survive in space. Well, I love the vision that that you've painted here, and I definitely want to stay up to date with how the project's going. For everyone listening. Where can they connect with you and the company and how can they show support for whatever it is that you're working on? Sure. Uh, so follow Michael and myself. We are, I'm Nate Hawaii on Twitter. Uh, Michael is Michael Hawaii. Uh, our website is uh, oceanbitenergy.com. Um, we have a Substack. Uh, that you can get to through the, you know, the website, uh, reach out. Generally I read my DMS, um, but through the website is easier. I, I'll go days without checking Twitter. I'm not super active on it. Uh, I got better things to do, right? <laughs> um, yeah, it can be a huge time sink. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Reach out through the website. We have a contact form, you know, we're looking for, the amount of, you know, people who have reached out to us who have, you know, mechanic, if you're a mechanical engineer, if you're working in a shipyard, if you're, uh, you know, anything tangentially related, staffing up is, you know, this is what we're getting into. We're about to go, uh, you know, we're hiring and we're going to be hiring. We're going to throw a lot. We need a lot of bodies. Uh, so if you have, you know, any background engineering, um, reach out and we can find a place for you. Well, I, I absolutely love seeing what you, not only hearing the vision, but following you from afar to a certain degree on Twitter and, and some of the other podcasts and things that you've been on. I, I, before we started recording, I broke out my best Hawaiian shirt for the occasion here. Um, so I really appreciate you coming on, man. This has been great. Uh, I'll have to meet up with your co-founder in Miami, uh, at Bitcoin yeah. 2023, but we'll, we'll have to, uh, we'll have to meet up sometime and do another podcast recording. This was a lot of fun. I learned so much. This might be the podcast where I've learned the most out of any other podcast. Cause this is just a completely new realm for me. The ocean, man, it's uh, the ocean is, is magical. And it was awesome being here, William. I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, Michael would be, you know, Michael's on the business. I'm the, the vision. Michael's the serious business person. And he's, he's uh, you know, he, he's, he's great. Yeah. <laughs>